What's up and welcome back to Nostalgia Pod, giving you another look at what's going on in pop culture. My name is Pat Sheehan, joined on this Halloween by my co-host, Dave Martin Swagger. Dave, how was your uh, spooky weekend, man? Very, very spooky going up into western New York. Tread lightly, way out there. (laughs) What were we for Halloween this year? I was Chris Pine from the Don't Worry Darling premiere at venice spitgate incarnate <laughs> did you and uh adam maholic not friend of the show who, no uh, hater yeah make sure you beep that name out uh who went as harry styles for this this couple's costume did you guys reenact the spit we actually didn't we just tried to make the pose we should have made like a tiktok of it to be honest but yeah we, we were content, content with yeah. what we did with the costumes so good enough <laughs> And you, of course, did a uh, tried-and-true couple's costume classic. Dave, I'm not much of a Halloween person, and uh, basically the... The other other part of this equation is... Exactly. The instructions I give my wife every year, well, I guess this is the first year as my wife, but my partner every year, are I will do a costume if I don't put a lot of effort into it. And Han Solo is about as low effort as it gets when you put on a a Henley and a... uh, a, (laughs) best that mm. looks nothing like Hans Solo's outfit so tunic but you know it's it, people know who you are when you're next to someone dressed up as Princess Leia with the hair and everything so yes uh, the costume was recognizable I was comfortable and no effort went in so pretty, pretty successful all around I mean I got a cute little dog who got to be a little Chewbacca so who doesn't hate yeah. that there really you go anyways now that we've moved we've passed our our amazing Halloween experience which uh I feel like I feel like I'm growing out of Halloween now, man. I don't know if I'm just interesting. Old. You don't feel I that enjoy way? it. I, I enjoy it. I think it's fun if you could try and do something original. Like obviously, like I think it's lame if you're just like, oh, let me like order the Ted Lasso jumper from Spirit <laughs> Halloween and just put that on. Like, fine, whatever. But like, if you like, I think piecing together costumes or whether they're they're current or classics, I think that's still fun, fun to do and cool. But uh, well, I don't have any kids to trick or treat with, so it's really <laughs> just that. That that is a big part of the equation. So, um, anyways, if you want to hear more about our Halloween content, hit that subscribe on YouTube.com/slash Nostalgia Pod, where you can also listen to all of our takes on albums and music, which we're going to be talking about at the top here, as well as some movies and some television, some big TV drops this past week. But Dave, we're going to start at a place that. <laughs> We haven't started in a long time with an album that I think we're this divided on, which is Waiting to Spill, the second album from the Backseat Lovers, the the saviors of Utah rock, which uh, who knows what that scene was really like from, you know, the, the good old days of, I don't even know, Jürgen Durgenman out there. But the Backseat Lovers came out of my, my radar, and I was the one I wanted to talk about this album mostly today. Uh Back in, you know, probably late last year, um, a friend friend of the show, Andrew Richmond, turned me on to this band. And this is a band he likes a lot. And their album, When We Were Friends, came back came out in 2019, their debut album. And I, I started seeing all the the concert and the uh, the festival. And Backstabs were like way higher up than I had expected. And so I was intrigued. I was like, oh, they, these these guys must be getting some popularity or some notoriety. Sure enough, I think that they're a pretty well-known indie band at this point. So when I saw that 
you're preparing to drop an album, I was very interested to see what this was going to be, if this was going to level them up in some way, or if this was going to kind of be more of the same, kind of keep them in the same line. And, you know, as, as I listened to when we were friends a few times, what stood out to me about their style is just like, it's kind of meandering with these like very like strategic swells and the songs are performative, uh, but you really don't know what direction and very unpredictable and i I think you've got more of this on this album although i think they tried to branch out their sound in a couple of different ways to varying degrees of success so winning was a bit of a bitten down for me really excellent moments and moments that really disappointed me but i know you didn't really great experience with this no i uh, did not care for waiting to spill i was waiting i was waiting and the spill never came. The spill never came. Now, I mean, for me, this is just classic, like, the indie rock that's not my bag. I just thought it just kind of droned on and was a bit, uh, as you said, meandering. I just really didn't connect with the vocal performance and was pretty lost with it quite quickly. So, classic not-for-me type thing. But I'm glad, uh, you know, uh, uh, congratulations, or sorry that happened. Well, for you, Pat. <laughs> uh, and I mean, I only think there's a few songs that like felt really not in the right, right place for me. Something like all the sound is like this, like piano tuning, like upbeat type sound for them. And I didn't really like connect with that as much. There's a couple others. Like, I think it's uh, we're in a snowbank blues, which is very like tone has a few like vocal moments where like the singer really like is very sharp and, and uh that kind of like perks you up to the song it didn't really grab me but then a few of the songs that stood out to me like close your eyes feels like a very classic axie lover song where it's a little slow but it really looks up to this really like roaring like swell of a outro which is really strong and really captures the emotion of the song and like I think another song that really to me was Know Your Name, which the first time I listened, if you like closed your eyes, you might have been able to like mistake the the vocal performance for like a a Radiohead B-side in a way. Um, And that, that, you know, Know Your Name has like whirring guitars, a little bit even more like rockish at times. So I thought that was pretty great. And then the third clear standout is the growing thing for me, which is like funkier as kind of like a a back field in some ways i really appreciated that they were really like trying something here i don't know if this is going to necessarily like tell them into the mainstream in any way if you like indie rock or if you like the backseat lovers i think you're going to find quite a lot on here that you do like so even though you didn't dave i'm sorry i made you listen to it (laughs) i think there was uh quite a few things to take away is there anything good you can say about this album uh no not really <laughs> i didn't really like it sorry no worries well i'm gonna be putting a song because i control the playlist onto our now the best of 2022 playlist if you like this album tell dave why you're wrong in the comments on yes YouTube. please do and another artist we haven't got a chance to talk about on this podcast yet other than is a featured artist on a few albums is fred again who the last time I remember talking about him was back in July for the Rico Nasty <laughs> album, of course. And the song Jungle, which I think both of us thought was a uh, 
one of the the better songs from that one of the songs that maybe stood out as being unique and uh you know as as i saw this fred again album coming out this past weekend i was like you know i at least want to see what this guy's about and so we checked it out this is actual life three it's been kind of his like running theme for his albums in the last three years is just kind of dropping these one year spanning albums uh called actual life one two and three have you listened to the first two dave i jumped around a little bit uh we actually had talked about fred again one other time i think that was the first time i really came aware of him which would be early 2020 when he produced that heady one mixtape gang he did all those beats and i was like oh this is a guy who's like producer kind of coming into his own more publicly that way but then you look under the hood and you're like oh wait this guy's been a major like pop producer and songwriter for the last 10 years working with loads of a-listers and it's like oh wow interesting now he's kind of becoming more of a public facing artist in his own right so was definitely intrigued to check out uh fred again solo work here with this actual life three the first two came out last year so this is his first big release this year and I had heard one of his singles leading up to this, which would be Turn On The Lights Again, which is a song he did with Swedish House Mafia featuring Future, because notably that, of course, samples Future's breakout song from a decade ago, uh, Turn On The Lights. <laughs> and that's that, that song, that single is not on Actual Life 3, but it kind of fits that mold, which is this concept of this like sam- heavy sampling nature that Fred is putting into all this music. And I think that's probably what's like the coolest thing to think about with this, this music is that it's really like targeted specific sampling of like the most random ass shit, like viral TikToks and live covers of songs and all kinds of other stuff. And just the fact that that kind of like approach has been brought into a mainstream uh, house and UK garage release is like pretty cool, honestly. Yeah, definitely cool. And, you know, you mentioned him working with a bunch of people. Uh, I mean, Ed Sheeran, probably the biggest name here, but BTS, Storms, the, um, you know, Eminem has been someone else he's worked with. Swedish House Mafia, like you mentioned, like Rita Ora, George Ezra, Demi Lovato, everybody. So this is a this is a big, big producer. And I agree. I think there's there's some interesting moments to this. Definitely like fun to hear like the samples and how he kind of works things in but i also feel like this a lot of times this felt just like pretty classic house vibe to me and while i think you can put this on just like you know vibe to it and have a good time i don't know if there's any like tracks on here that i was like oh man this is like this is a classic like edm song something that's gonna i'm gonna come back to a lot i guess maybe like some of the singles he had five singles from this standout something like delilah i thought mm. was pretty strong in the yeah. beginning um danielle a little bit later on i liked too but you know overall i kind of found it to be uh not, i wouldn't say bad but like just not super memorable yeah but it sounds like you found a, a couple of things that really stood out to you well yeah i didn't love all, all of it either but i think some of those songs are quite good delilah pulled me out of it in general the song names like the, you look at the track list and it's a lot of like word parentheses word like noun percent parentheses phrase and it's like he's kind of describing the song or describing the sample with 
than like a vocal tick as the rest of the song name. It, it, it's kind of cool because it kind of reminds me of like when music leaks and like the fake, the, the not official song names come out. Cause like, that's how it was organized on the computer. So, but like, it actually kind of makes sense when you're listening to this, given the concept. Uh, yeah. I think Delilah is really cool. Cool. Just like the way that pull me out of this vocal line in the sample, the way that like loops itself, of course, while the production itself is looping as you'd expect from house music. I thought that was a lot of fun. Uh, I liked Nathan still breathing as well. And Ilar shutters as well has a really cool horn, you know, drop in uh, in the middle there. But yeah, I mean, I think a lot of it, yeah, it, it does kind of come across as what you expect from house music. And um, I think just the like, kind of like audacity to sample like random ass shit in this manner is quite cool like he's not even sampling an 070 shake song he's sampling the live version of that song you know like it just it's quite specific and you know in, in reflecting like you said he's had a big year and he's really kind of come up come on lately as a solo artist and if you think about like uk djs specifically like uk like club djs you know like obviously like calvin harris is british and he's gigantic and like but like Fred again is like very quickly like a fo- trying to follow like disclosure and like Jamie XX like he's really rising up in terms of like British EDM artists that are crossing over in the United States and just kind of yeah. taking over the scene so definitely someone to really pay attention to and even if this is not like the best thing I've ever heard there's still a lot of like intentionality and like specific touches to this kind of concept that has me quite intrigued uh, for the future and I would recommend to check out the YouTube videos the visualizers of these songs because it'll often have like the tiktok being sampled if that's one of the songs with the tiktok and the tiktok will be frozen when it's not actually being sampled and then when the sample actually comes in on the mix it'll start playing again in the visualizer really nice touch for the youtube that that's great yeah you know you mentioned quite a few songs i think another one i liked a lot was clara that's one. that's one of those songs as you think about like the next step for him fame wise is probably going to be being a upper tier uh, EDM act at a festival or the festival mm-hmm. circuit in the next year or so. And it, I think he already started doing that last year as well. And so you can just see Clara being a, like one of the closing songs for his set. And yeah, you know, I, I'm excited to see where this goes. Cause I, like you met, like you mentioned before, he's worked with a lot of people and it's a big variety. I think he's the kind of guy that, seems to be like he's going to be uh have his, his uh stir in, in a lot of different pots going forward so mm-hmm. i'm excited to see how he moves forward and i think the exciting thing is like how he's going to move forward with this like very like english like uh hip-hop sphere that he's in stormzy mm-hmm. and heady uh, yeah heady uh and i mean also he's been, he's worked with burner boy before so there's like this like very eclectic perspective he can he can bring to some people that i think could probably use it like ed sheeran who we know we've talked about is like been he seems to be a great collaborator with him which is great but like obviously i think could bring a little bit more edge to him so we'll see how it goes anyways uh let's keep it moving to another album i wasn't i don't think we were expecting to talk about division uh with this is what their fourth album i believe yes working on my karma um yeah you know i liked 
pretty much everything we we talked about today. Fred again, probably my least favorite album, but I didn't expect Division to be fighting for my number one spot because I really, I really thought this was really a great album. And Division mm. as a a duo, I don't think we've talked about on the pod before, but we talked uh, about the last. I, I we talked about the last one in twenty twenty, Amuse in Her Feelings, which was the first time we talked about them. But then they also released last year a collab album with Ty Dolla Sign that we did not talk about. So this is their first, uh, just the duo album in two years. But as we said at the time, notable group because they are, of course, signed to OVO Sound, signed to Jersey Drake, and as to be expected, are not really super famous or mainstream despite the mainstream attention and, and label affiliation that they have. Uh, to be expected to with Drake signees, as people know, but especially off the last record, like really smooth artists, smooth for R and smooth male R and B artists. We've talked about male R and B a lot this year with Brent Fiaz and Giveon, and of course, people know that f- women really run run the scene at this time. So it's a lot of competition, but yeah, I wasn't really expecting it. I think it just kind of like snuck up on me that it was coming out, and. I didn't like this one as much as the last time, but I, I think there are some interesting qualities that they bring. Of course, this is the producer vocalist duo with uh, the producer 1985, who of course did a lot of Drake production with views. But uh, they haven't really worked with Drake in a while, it seems like. But they're still on the label. But uh, yeah, why why did you why did you like it so much? What uh, what stood out to you about uh, the fourth Division album? I think. Uh... A few things. I think some of the songs were just really fun. Like right off the bat, last time featuring Blue, I thought was just like a really fun, like uh, captivating track. Um, and you're just kind of bouncing to it. But then you have a few just like I think like really like fun flourishes uh, throughout. I I was really surprised, but also like in like the best way possible to get the ticket slow sample from john legend and even have that as like the outro i thought that was like a nice touch um there's a couple uh tracks in the second half that i thought were like just really really like uh just like probably some of the best r&b that we've listened to this year and i think overall my expectations going into this were very high obviously i I didn't remember much about amusing (laughs) so i was like uh you know not uh super taken by them and i just thought this was some of the smoothest r&b that we've we've talked about on here. So I was really excited when you get good R and B, it really, at least for me, sticks with me. So I thought this yeah. was great, but what did you find? Didn't live up to your expectations from last time. Yeah. Well, speaking of touches, I really love that there's a jagged edge feature on this. Yeah. Shout out jagged edge. Awesome. poll. It's really cool to hear stuff like that once in a while. Like I remember back, you know, four years ago when Charlie Puth had voice to men on voice notes. It's like when you like pull like from the past, like in, in a manner like that, like it's a seemingly genuinely loving manner. Really nice to hear. Um, I think for me, the thing that kind of disappointed me about it was one of the singles, of course, got a lot of flack early on uh, a few weeks back. If I get caught just cause like literally the way the chorus goes, like if I get caught cheating, doesn't mean I still don't love you or whatever it goes. It's like just kind of like an openly toxic thing that we associate negatively in male R&B. And I think the thing with this album for me is that, you know, I think the singing voices from uh, the singing voice from Daniel Daly, the vocalist in Division, his voice is he's smooth and like he's produced well. 
and like he always sounds good but like it's not like as like striking vocal as like the baritone that we know Giveon has like it isn't like wow you like that and on the other side of things like the toxic wise or even just like more inventive music like the approach doesn't impress me the way brent fias does you know so i feel like this is kind of like an in, in the middle r&b record to me and given there's a lot of like competition for your time and your ears in r&b right now it just didn't really live up to i think what i was hoping for because the last record i did really appreciate just how smooth that was and my takeaway was that they deserve a much bigger spotlight than they've gotten despite being signed to Drake. And I still agree with that, that thought, but like, I think this one just came in a little, little short to me, man. I'm, I'm surprised to hear you say the, the smooth, uh, critique. I, I felt like this was incredibly smooth. You know, something like tired near the, the end of the album just feels like you're just like gliding like over like silk sheets or something like that, you know? <laughs> um, I agree with you on um, if I get caught that that song in and of itself sounds like it should be on like a 50 shades soundtrack. So you can just <laughs> take that out of there. But like, I thought something like um, don't take your love is like so bouncy and like fun to like, just like have in the middle of the album and really takes you to like this different place. Then you kind of get back to like the more traditional type sound. Something like hating is uh, a little bit more traditional, I guess like this, that, vocal loop is a bit uh, distinguished then like i said like take it slow i think is an inspired like use of that piano like to like really take that and um kind of like tone it up but also would like loop it around a little bit bring in the the drums and then have john legend on the the outro i guess maybe that was just like cool to get that like cleared to do that also a nice cosign from john legend to allow that i'd say um but yeah, and I agree that the Jagged Edge sample was cool too. But yeah. I mean, this album was like executively produced by Jermaine Dupri, like Jagged Edge, not as mainstream or prolific as he once was, but still like big deal to have Jermaine yeah. Dupri working on your your stuff uh, in that way, that uh, as much as he was, of course, making or co-producing every song. So yeah, I think for me, it's just like I actually had like higher expectations after the last record and this one just didn't quite match that for me. But I don't think it's bad or anything like that. Um, yeah, I mean, we've, we've, we talked about R&B, I think, a lot more the last year or two than we have prior to that. You know, I just there's more and more stuff happening that's interesting, you know, whether it's a Jasmine Sullivan, whether it's a Brent Fias, whoever it might be. There's a lot going on. I think that's really great for the for the genre. So, you know, the fact that you have so much melody uh, in hip hop, like that's kind of like the default sound right now. But R and B can still be its own separate thing and hasn't been like put off in the corner or just ru- ignored. Like R and B's come like a really long way in the last ten years after really hitting a dip. So I think Division definitely helping helping the cause. You know, so I'm sure people that are fans of Division will be into this one. Well, well, we'll probably add a song to our now Salja Best of 2022 playlist on Spotify, so follow there. Let's wrap up music today, though, with Smino. Love for Rent. Uh, it's been a few years since we talked about Smino. 2018 Noir, I guess. Did we talk about uh, the mixtape in 2019? I can't remember. Uh, yeah, there's a surprise mixtape on in 2020. Uh, she already decided, I believe yeah. it was, which is 
a classic mixtape, not on digital streaming platforms. You got to go get that the old fashioned way, which was a, was really cool. And then you listen to it and say, Oh, it's a real mixtape with like, with samples and uh, freestyles and stuff. So it makes sense. So yeah, it's still been a few years for Smino, but I think he's been a pretty consistent feature uh, in the past few years as he by no means is like a mainstream artist, but I think he's pretty well known and established as a, you know, singular artist in hip hop right now, you know, and uh, a lot of anticipation, I think, for the the next proper Smino solo album. And I was definitely anticipating Love for Rent. And I think it definitely gives you a lot of those qualities that people have come to expect from Smino. And uh, definitely a lot of inter- interesting things about it, because I think he's become a really in- uh, interesting voice in his own 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 regard. But uh, I mean, how do you feel about about Love for Ren? Because I think this one is a bit different from Noir in terms of how, the Smino of it all. Like the, his, his performance definitely went in a different direction. I think. Yeah, I, I thought this was uh, a pretty fun listen. I mean, I think it's it, he's doing a lot, right? So uh, because he's doing so much, not everything is going to uh, have the same batting average. But. Uh, my my main takeaway, and I had kind of forgotten this from reviewing Smino projects, and I think you don't really get this when you get a Smino feature, uh, is how much you can sound like Mac Miller at times, which it just like really throws me off. Like sometimes his vocal performance just it sounded just like a Mac Miller sample or something like that. Um, but beyond that, I think that I think it, he sounds like he was really like inspired to go for a certain type of style or sound and didn't fully like commit and execute and like so it the album i think i think is like almost in this like oh wow he's really like elevating to some sort of artistic level but then doesn't quite go and i'm like oh mm-hmm. we're a bit of a blue ball type situation i'd say did, how did you feel though did you have that same experience yeah honestly I think he commits to a direction. I just think he almost overdid it. Like, oh. I don't think I would expect to say this, but I think it's like too much soul on this one. Hmm. Like, Smino with Black Swan, with Noir, with the mixtape, had established himself as a unique artist from the Midwest, you know, f- familiar to the Chicago hip hop scene, not from Chicago, but close by, of course. But bringing in like Midwest sounds and then bringing in, of course, the Southern sounds everybody knows. And like there was a neat, unique blend. But on top of being like a, a pretty fun rapper in that that regional uh, orbit, he also had like these real soul sensibilities. And on Love for Rent, I think he like really dives into that soul stuff. You know, like he sings on this album more than he raps, it feels like. And. I actually like it sometimes when he like really sings because I think there's some really cool moments like the chorus on 90 proof, the single with J Cole, like the high notes he hits on that chorus. It's both catchy, but it's just like straight up like sung chorus, you know? But for me, it's like, I, I just think this almost lacks some of the bite. I kind of wanted from it because like there was just l- less hip hop on this than there was in the past on his other work. And that's just kind of speaking to my taste and what I wanted to hear. But he does do the soul well. Like it, it is soulful as fuck. Like th- th- there's no doubt about that, you know? And even if this wasn't quite exactly what I was looking for, like it, it's pretty clear that like he has taken from a lot of influences, 
but still kind of brought himself into this music. And that's why he like really stands out, I think, as a unique artist uh, within hip hop these days. But I mean, yeah, how did you feel about like the clear dive into soul and neo soul? Yeah, you know, it's interesting because I, I don't know if I necessarily like had that stand out to me. I, I definitely noticed that it was a lot more singing from him. I think I think because of the lack of like choirs consistently, I wasn't necessarily mm-hmm. feeling the soulfulness as much. But I, I definitely can see what, what you're saying. And as I'm like thinking back to some songs like, oh, yeah, there's definitely like influence there from soul. I think like. Maybe for me too, the the songs that I found myself gravitating towards most, like a song like Bro Fre- Bro Freak with uh, Dochi and Batman Scoop, like that song almost feels like it was like a he was trying to make a Good Kid, Mad City record, you know. And a few times on this, we get like moments. Me even has the song called Old Ass Kendrick. So like, <laughs> I feel like there's a lot of moments where he's trying to like pull in these like, I, it's definitely a soulful, more like jazzy influences to like bring about uh i think a bit more emotion and, and i think also like some variety and some danciness to the album um and i think for me i, f- I was kind of leaning more into that that perspective so I'm, I'm trying to process as we talk i mean as i'm also like looking through here and thinking about his like uh features like the ones that i think everybody's going to be talking about j cole for sure i mean that's the that track already has like 60 million plays on spotify so uh legit single there but um you know i don't know if any of them really stops me other than like obviously little uzi and Mm -hmm. little uzi and i mean uzi is just so much himself it's like i don't know that that didn't feel so full to me either but i i get what you're saying now now that you said it (laughs) just i'm trying to like make sense of it now i can't believe i missed it really yeah no that's all good uh the uzi feature is definitely fun and to me kind of like highlights is like oh wow listen to uzi like really fitting into this vibe of love for rent but still being uzi still rapping and and he's not he's been on a great feature run lately but like smino like you know i think no else stood out to me in terms of like the flow from smino there like that's one where i was like yeah it's still pretty hip-hop that's still familiar to some of his older work but yeah i mean i think to me i would probably have to gravitate towards stuff like blue billy where you hear like this blatant harmonization from smino with his vocals and like often harmonizing with himself and like layering in in stuff like that um and moving forward i'm actually quite curious to hear like what is next for him because it seems like he's clearly going down this this path you know where there there is less less blatant rapping uh coming from him and i do i do think he does this well enough that there is definitely room to keep going down this road but like i said it just kind of perhaps just threw me for a loop a little bit to hear like such of like a strong departure from what i was more accustomed to expecting from him and like most of his features too are still pretty hip-hop leaning you know but yeah he seen he, he did make it work for the most part i think on this yeah, I mean, even a song like Defibrillator, right, which I think speaks to that soulfulness that you're talking about, when he raps, he can still fucking bring it. And so it's like, uh, you know, if if this is him really leaning into this as like a career arc or more so just for the album, I'm not sure. But he seems to be he seems to be wanting to push himself as an artist, which is really mm. cool. And he's still mm-hmm. like, what, in his 20s? So he's got a lot of a lot of 
room to grow still so i'm excited to see what's next for him do you have like one track that really just like grabbed you you mentioned blue billy yes mino's actually 31 look at that uh you know (laughs) i I think 90 proof just really stands out like i love this mino performance and then you also have a really strong jekyll feature verse tacked in there as well like it, it works really well um like i said blue billy is good noel's pudgy with uzi um yeah, I think there's plenty to like. Yeah, definitely lots of like. Uh, so we'll be adding a track or two to our Now Such the Best 2020 playlist. Go follow there. Stay up to date with all the music that we like. But Dave, when you you can get Jessica Chastain and the Golden Boy of Hollywood together to make a thriller horror movie, true crime horror movie. You got to do it, right? That's what Netflix did with The Good Nurse. What do you think? You, you enjoy this one? Honestly, yeah, I, I did. I had a solid time with the Good Nurse. You know, I, it's not a movie that I think will wow you for any one thing, but it's just pretty solid, pretty competent, uh, familiar as well. But I didn't really mind the familiarity of f- familiarity of it, which is you know, like you said, a standard kind of true crime dramatization thriller. Doesn't quite lean into the thriller elements as much as I would have liked kind of stays more down the middle instead but still pretty enjoyable i think to me to be with jessica jastain be with namdi asamwa and noah emmerich the police officers <laughs> and watch them trying to get the get the bad guy who of course is uh, eddie redmayne's character so yeah it, it's it's not it doesn't reinvent the wheel really at all but i thought it was pretty pretty solid pretty tight at the same time Namdi Asamoah. Didn't think we were going to be talking about him in a, a movie. Uh, rising actor. Fiction movie. Definitely a rising actor. Uh, I mean, I thought he was all right in this. I mean, he has the yeah. the, the big scene where he screams at uh, the hospital director. To, yeah, Kim Dickens. You know what you're doing. Um, but really, this is like a Chastain, Redmayne showcase. And um, I mean, there was there was a lot going on. Uh, I think I think some of the stuff with Jessica Chastain and her help, while I understand why they wanted to like fold that in to kind of like add this layer to their friendship, but also like the like back dealings and why Jessica Chastain mm-hmm. might protect him more. It didn't really make sense how like, you know, in, at one point this like heart thing could potentially kill her. She's like like having like a almost a heart attack like, yeah. after work. And then there's times when she's like at near the end of the movie, like running or like doing something, like exerting yourself a lot. It's like, oh, nope, this hard thing is just not not there anymore. That was like something I was like, ah, this just feels so like folded in for like, I guess, like plot development. But um, I think I think where I felt most let down by this actually is Redmi, right? Because yeah. it, while I understand that this is supposed to be just like a very like sly under the radar, like serial killer. Him playing Charles Cullen was just like barely intimidating at all. There were a few very tense scenes, obviously, but even like when Jessica Chastain has figured all this out and she comes home and he's just like in her home with her kids, I didn't like feel scared. I didn't like feel tension that like Eddie Redmayne was gonna like hurt these kids. I was like, ah, you know, it's just like a babysitter there, (laughs) and maybe that's the point. Like he wasn't a scary dude, but he did these awful things. But I feel like for this movie, the way that they were playing him up was like he's like this like terrible monster and you don't really 
get a, a sense of intimidation from him at all. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree about that. And I think just if the movie was conceived a little differently, it would just be more interesting. You know, like, imagine, like, what this story would have been if it was part of Mindhunter, you know? Mm. Obviously, that's a high bar to put on any movie, but, like, I think you could have made it more intriguing if you, as you get to, the, the threat of Cullen, the threat of this serial killer who people don't even know is part of a killing spree. Like there's no one knows anything. Right. And that, that aspect, that fear, that tension of these murders being committed and no one knowing that they're connected, that unfortunately just doesn't really have any momentum in the movie. And like you said, there's not a whole lot of fear associated with the red main performance. And I, you know, for me, like I actually thought like it starts off quite strongly but I think where I kind of got lost with with Eddie is at the end when he has been caught and he kind of like is exposed for who how he really is and showing that he has like mental health issues of some kind, you know. But I don't know, like it felt a bit like more caricature when you watch Eddie just like pounding his fist, cuffed fist on the table for like a minute straight and like refusing to speak. Uh, to the police speaking to speak about anything he had done like i don't know like it just wasn't as convincing as as i needed it to be but at the same time i just kind of enjoyed going through the predictable motions but going through the motions of the story because i don't actually like true crime documentary series or movies at all i'd rather watch a dramatization of it that's more compelling to me so that's why i i still like appreciate this because i think it's pretty solid you know but obviously, no, if this was probably if the filmmaking was more higher minded and the screenplay was a bit wittier, it probably could have been more intriguing. But for a solid down the middle version of something like this, I was still pretty satisfied. Yeah, I, I think I think you aren't going to be putting this on like every year around Halloween to watch something spooky. You know, it's the sort of thing where it's like, all right, you watch this once, maybe on like a rainy day, you'll put it on again in the background. But uh you know, it, it's a competent, like, psychological thriller, but just uh, there are better ones out there. Chastain, I think, is is pretty good. She's always pretty good, which, mm-hmm. you know, is like her, like, bar, basically her, her low bar. Um, and uh, I think I think I just kind of found myself being like, I don't know why Jessica Chastain keeps taking these sorts of roles. Like, <laughs> I just want her to be doing, like, better stuff, but I guess you're not mm-hmm. always going to be doing the, the upper echelon stuff unless you're like you know like leo or, or something like that so she did just win an oscar she's allowed one True. of these <laughs> yeah and and she was in uh a, in, not a marriage Se- scenes from a marriage scenes from a marriage yeah so like she, she's been doing this sort of stuff so absolutely get that check also pretty pretty easy for her it felt like she was she could have been sleepwalking through a lot of this so yeah i right. don't blame her but. yeah i mean also noah emmerich as one of the police officers <laughs> like just doing the Americans again, exactly. Know, walk in the park for him. <laughs> yeah, and and Kim Dickens also just like yep, you know, sleepwalking as well. But it all came together to be pretty good. So yeah. Uh, Speaking think- of Kim Dickens, I would have loved more of the like hospitals cover up aspect Completely of it. Agree. All these hospitals independently like making their own like business decisions to hide their association with Cullen. Like that's that was this complete untapped uh, potential. Mm-hmm. I think in terms of like uh, dramatic. Uh, you know, material. Alas, it was a good twenty minutes of the movie too, and we, it, I could have just used so much more of that. And 
kind of less of uh <laughs> less of Redmayne just being you know quiet and weird but uh you know uh, it's a movie that i think is it's like fine it's passable uh, on your uh letterbox list david it'll probably be in like the 30s or 40s at that so mm-hmm. anyways why don't we uh switch gears to something that i think might be a little bit higher which is all quiet on the western front the 2022 adaptation of the classic classic novel from uh eric maria remark um Dave, I mean, if I had to just give you like my initial thoughts after finishing this movie, it's that man, war is fucking stupid, and the fact that we continue to engage in it is just like ridiculous. Yeah. Uh, the 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 mission statement, the thesis of all quiet on the Western Front, just as strong a hundred years later, it was seen to be effective with you. Yeah, I, I I agree. You know, I think it's obviously anti-war novel adapted multiple times of course most famously in 1930 to film which was the third best picture winner lest we forget anti-war movie and i think this one 2022 all quiet on the western front definitely hits just as hard and you have those same takeaways and it's unfortunately just as prescient and relevant and thought-provoking today as it would have been you know, in 1930. And in a sense, that's a depressing thing to think about. But yeah, I think this was a really compelling adaptation. And I think a big part of that is this is a German uh, adaptation and it's the official German uh, submission for Best International Feature Film at the Oscars this year. So stay tuned if it does get nominated. Uh, but the reason I think this is a high-level adaptation is that the filmmaking is quite top-notch. With this, you have a really uh, effective, memorable score. You have, I think, really high production values. And it, it, overall, it, it's quite convincing. You know, we've come a long way from the 1930 version, which, of course, was in black and white. You know, this is a bit a, a, a bit further along, you know, and it it doesn't have like the gimmicky flourishes of 1917. But this version of 1917, World War One. Still, still, I think some pretty impressive camera work and, and lighting and blocking and all all that. Like it's, it, 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 the message is still strong and the the picture is really vibrant. Really, there's no punches pulled with this version. Uh, yeah, this is uh, probably uh, the most brutal depiction of war I can remember. I mean that, thing, I mean right up there with Saving Private Ryan, like opening scene, um, just absolutely gutting a lot of it and uh, a true true testament to the uh the set design on this the execution of all the um the trenches and just like the the battlefields looked so realistic um yeah and the the action scenes felt like you were really in these battles and like up close and personal for a lot of it um you know the the scene where Paul stabs the guy in the the crater or the, the mm-hmm. trench, wherever they are, and then like shoves the mud in his mouth and tries to save him. Was just like, I just wanted to get out of that scene so badly. I I didn't fast forward, but like I was like, I, I might just have to like go move past this. It's too brutal to watch. And uh, I, war movies, I, a lot of times I think we're like so desensitized to them because they've been so, yeah. uh, you know, commercialized in, in Hollywood and um, played up for entertainment, but. 
at this point is one where it really makes your stomach turn quite a few times to to see the scenes play out and like you said that's kind of the point of the movie but and and of the book but uh I, i can't remember a depiction that really made me feel quite like this afterwards right and i think uh right off the jump too you're just thrown right into that like watching uniforms being pulled off corpses to then be washed so they can be given to the fresh recruits that are uh refilling the cannon fodder at the front it's just really in your face for its darkness and just how bluntly graphic this this war was as i think most people would know at this point um and to immediately follow that scene up with your introduction to Paul and his buddies in northern Germany, these, you know, 17, 18 year old young men who have this kind of rah rah patriotism and enthusiasm for the glory of war and uh, fighting for the fatherland, fighting for Germany, even though the war has been going on for several years and we are in the phase where the Germans are on the back foot and, and in the process, process of losing the Germans and their allies. So to kind of like see the, that energy, that youthful exuberance thrown into this, the meat grinder right, right away is, it is quite effective. And like, they do such a good job of like highlighting the absolute brutality and just terrible life that was, being in the trenches you know and i think world war one is a war that hasn't been as glamorized on the screen as you said right like like growing up as a kid like i love watching war movies i love saving private ryan but i liked it for the action because i was a dumb male you know (laughs) like it's a little different and obviously we just had 1917 come out at the end of 2019 but that's a movie which as the filmmaking highlights front and center doesn't keep you in the trench mm-hmm. i'll the western front is more grounded and i think more more realistic more to the average experience and of course this is the the, the german experience but yeah I, I just think like going through all like the various scenes and watching everything play out like if you whether you've seen the original or not or you've read the novel nothing might wow you per se but like i think it's just a really high level version of this story and i mean shout out uh felix camera camera who plays paul this is his first role you know like very very impressive to carry the movie in this manner the the, the biggest actor to the average viewer of course would be daniel Bruhl, a fellow german who plays uh, actually a real person matthias matthias Erzberger. Yeah. Who was a uh, politician who helped with the armistice, and I think that, I think I believe that's a change. Where like the showing the armistice angle and uh, watching that come to be in the war ending. I don't believe that's actually in the other movies, the other movie or or the book. I believe the book is strictly first person. But I actually liked that kind of other side of the thing because I think it actually does a really good job of showing like. The, the political decision-making at this time while con- directly contrasting that with just the never-ending death that was this war at this time, you know? So I, I thought it was pretty effective to have that added in. And of course, Brule is a great actor. Yeah, Brule is great. And I, I think he's really uh, 
brings a, a nice presence to this. You know, you mentioned like the like way that you love seeing Private Ryan because you were like a dumb male, but like think about how that like embodies the way Paul is in this mm-hmm. movie. You know, he goes in and he's told that this is how your father's gonna be proud of you, and like they're so excited when they go in, like immediately just like hating his hating the experience and uh it's it's completely brutal they they show you everything i mean you watch his friend get set on fire by the um, flamethrower right Mm -hmm. after he surrenders you see the uh his his buddy who gets shot in the leg take the fork and jam it into his jugular in order to kill himself because he doesn't want to live to be a cripple after the war you you just see all this play out and it's so so brutal and unsettling and you know it's uh, i think similar to like the experience of world war one but i think all war in general like there's these moments of like joy and these moments of like triumph you know you think about like when they find out that the armistice is coming and they go to steal some eggs to celebrate and you know possibly a, a hen and then pretty quickly his, his buddy is shot <laughs> by the the farm kid and another person lost unnecessarily and then you know they're they're all looking forward to ending and immediately you get that that speech from uh who was that uh prop was that the general Uh, yeah like the commander at the front yeah yeah and they're all just like no like we're not going and they actually show one of the people get shot because he fought back it's just man just freaking brutal the whole time incredibly well done though i was so impressed with like the actual like filmmaking aspect of it yeah totally so i I definitely rooting for this to get one of those oscar noms for international feature film category Uh, did you watch it in a german with subtitles did you go to the dub obviously a netflix movie has myriad language options so it started it started off just uh my settings started off with the british english and then i switched to the dub for a while and then I was like, you know, I, I'm probably not going to follow, continue following this. So I switched back to the American English to to finish it out. So I was kind of like back and forth on it. What about you? Uh, I stuck to German with subtitles. I'm just, I'm a big fan of, I'd rather read the subtitles and hear the real acting than like hmm. hear somebody else voice act and watch someone act next to that. You know, like that's just how I've always felt about it. Um, but it's not exactly like a dialogue heavy film. No. So it's probably not as big a deal as it is with some other stuff, but obviously it's most important to watch it uh, in some manner. So it doesn't really matter how you watch it, I suppose, but uh, yeah, definitely, uh, definitely a success and just a kind of a casual Netflix drop at the start of the awards run, you know, big, uh, lucky for us, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, crazy to get two award uh, competitors from Netflix on the same weekend, The Good Nurse and uh, All Quiet on the Western Front. So <laughs> exactly. Uh, why don't we uh, keep moving forward, though, to the smaller screen? I guess we watched both these on the smaller screen because of Netflix. But Tales of the Jedi, the newest animated uh, Star Wars product from Disney on Disney Plus. Uh, Dave, you were excited for this one, right? I was, yeah. This was only announced earlier this year at Star Wars Celebration. Uh, unexpected, but more Star Wars animation in, in the Clone Wars animation style uh, from Dave Filoni, of course, the creator of Clone Wars. Really, the way it was pitched, you know, as this kind of like more anthology, smaller scope series. It's like, huh, it's, it's almost like more Clone Wars, truthfully. And Obviously, Clone Wars has a rabid and loyal fan base to get anything 
close to more Clone Wars is very welcome. But I actually was quite impressed with, I think, the kind of like narrative aims of Tales of the Jedi, which is a series of six shorts. And it's only about 90 minutes in total runtime. So definitely different than Clone Wars, different than Star Wars Visions. It's a, it's a new kind of uh, product or, or a, you know, type of content, TV content from them. But these like dueling paths where you have this Ahsoka Tano storyline and this Count Dooku storyline and like the thematic through line that they are able able to weave in over the course of these, again, short running episodes. I, I was pretty impressed with that. And more than anything, now, now Tales of the Jedi as like a anthology animated Star Wars property is quite intriguing uh, in terms of the other possibilities that are still out there to be used in this way. So if this is the only version of Tales of the Jedi, we don't get any more still pretty content, but uh, yeah, in general, I, I was, I was anticipating this, but still surprised actually with what we did get. Yeah. I I was not expecting well, when I saw it was anthology, I guess I, I hadn't done my research on it, but I wasn't expecting it to be an Ahsoka account. Uh, Dooku, um, like, you know, the, two tales of, of different Jedi mm-hmm. going different directions. And I, I think similarly, uh, the little, the little I know of Ahsoka's background uh, from, you know, like reading up on it, she also like doesn't totally accept like the Jedi order. Right. And like, so I guess yeah, it's like she, she, she leaves, leaves the Jedi towards the end of the Clone Wars, Clone Wars season six. And that's why she uh, isn't directly killed in order 66 more. Of that's explained in Clone Wars as well. But yeah, she uh she leaves the order uh before Anakin's turn. So that was obviously a big thing. And of course people know Count Dooku uh leaves the order as well and joins up with Palpatine. And so I think it makes sense to follow them, just not what I expected at all. And um I think you also get some just like cool moments with some characters that people want to spend more time with, right? You get the uh some moments with young Qui-Gon as well as uh older Qui-Gon as we see him in Phantom Menace, um, mm-hmm. actually right before Phantom Menace. Yeah. Um, you see Yaddle, voiced by Bryce Dallas Howard, which, I mean, didn't expect to be getting some Yaddle, uh, like, fill-in here, but it's pretty cool to, like, get her story uh, built out a little bit more and, and to not have her just be, like, female Yoda, you know, to actually be, like, a real character. Speak nice. on it, bro. That That is the <laughs> highlight of Tales of the Jedi right there, episode four. Um, even separating the Yaddle aspect aside for a second that i think is so compelling to the the star wars fan which is to get an episode of tv centered directly around the events of the phantom menace that is so cool and we love that shit and that was what was great about some of clone wars season seven was because it was in and around revenge of the sith like it it feels like more movie in a sense and it's just so compelling to 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 a fan for in that in that regard and on top of that, to give Yaddle a canon death, because Yaddle was, her fate was unknown in the new canon. She had a different death in the expanded universe. So, like, to find a way to actually give her a really compelling and, and, and effective death, which also adds to Dooku's story as well, adds to the Phantom Menace, like, not something I would have expected from this series, but, like, I think it's just an, it's an amazing like creative decision to do something like that with j- one small short. 
completely agree. I was uh, I was really surprised, but welcome to see that. And you also get a little bit more time with like Anakin and Obi Wan has a, a brief cameo, just kind of like remarking on Ahsoka's like powers and abilities, which I thought was really nice. And um, yeah, I, I I found myself enjoying it. I mean, I think I certainly was way more interested in the Ahsoka stuff than the the Count Dooku stuff. Uh, just like Dooku is such a buzzkill to be with, you know, whether it's in that, that first episode when he's just like, he's so dry, you know, yeah. like as a character, it's not as, as fun. And I guess Ahsoka is not necessarily like a barrel of laughs, but I think just based on her allegiances and some of the characters she's interacting with, I was more interested. But like seeing Dooku basically being like bad cop with Qui-Gon and bad cop with Mace Windu back to back was kind of fun to, to watch yeah. for sure. Totally, totally. And yeah, like I said, episode four, like literally seeing Dooku like sneak into the archives and delete Kamino, which of course is a direct setup for what happens 10 years later in Attack of the Clones. Like that, that's just compelling to me as a, as a hardcore fan. Um, <laughs> a lot of, a lot of jokes online. Yaddle speaks normal English, speaks normal basics. So Yoda is just a weirdo for the way he yeah. speaks, I guess is the takeaway. Cause it doesn't seem to be a, uh, a species thing that he picked up you know through his uh uh scientific existence you know that that was uh also i think unexpected comedy i i think it's the sort of thing where people have different dialects and ways of speaking even on the you know in the united states so yeah you know, sometimes people are gonna we'll go with that <laughs> that's all right yep i still, totally. still still love my guy yoda come on yeah uh a lot of chatter online about doing like a tales of the sith like sister sequel series to tales of the jedi and you know upon further review seeing like palpatine like kill off darth plagueis which also happens right around phantom menace like there is some juicy uh material alone that because i think anything like that that like colors in uh the story we do know is just fun you know so like i said episode sure. four is pretty probably my, my highlight there and the last one episode six with ahsoka retreads a little bit of ground from one of the novels but um also pretty pretty compelling so in general i was just impressed with um how much they were able to like i think achieve dramatically with the short runtime given that clone wars in and of itself is a pretty uh self-contained and, and effective long-form story like the fact that you could somehow add to that in such a short amount of time is my, my main takeaway um and now looking ahead you know star wars visions is coming back in 2023 so star wars animation um, you know, perhaps doesn't get quite as much of the fanfare as the live action Disney Plus series, but still, I think, a important component to, you know, that Star Wars storytelling. Completely agree. And just to circle back to your point about the short form, I mean, this feels like something they can just like roll out for any story that they want to, you know, just build out these characters in these short forms. I mean, people want it. And this, uh, I think this is getting a lot of praise. So why not? you know right totally and i i think it's pretty clear like what their aims are with this where tales of the jedi i think is not super comprehensible to people that don't have pretty strong star wars knowledge and clone wars knowledge like the way like episodes stop and start like you know you might not know that was young qui-gon with dooku if you don't know that at the time dooku is his master right he doesn't say qui-gon for quite some time in the episode very end yeah so like uh it doesn't hold your hand to a new fan this is really like for the for the faithful 
So, um, but you know, they make so much stuff that I don't think there's an issue with making stuff just for the hardcore. So hope to see it continue in some way. Absolutely. Well, let's wrap up today talking about season two of the white Lotus, which dropped its first episode last night on HBO. And man, I mean, white Lotus surprise of last year, uh, 2020, like, it was 2020. Jeez. <laughs> really? I, I guess, I guess it's right? like in my mind because we've been talking about it so much with the, all the Emmy nominations and wins recently. Um, so, uh, no, season one was 2021. Oh, yeah, yeah, sorry, you're right. Yeah. Um, back so back. it has been uh, just like the surprise of last year. And uh, I think we don't need to go too much into why it was great. You can go listen to our past reviews, but mostly just Mike White's ability to um, really take down this the, the classism and the ignorance of, of the upper class as they uh, interact in this uh, environment that, you know, forces them to really like confront their their fakeness uh and and also their like uh fake activism i think is is just really like what what drew a lot of people to mm-hmm. it. just like so many smart critiques uh it's an incredibly well-written show and yeah. season two but, but also I mean, bringing you humor uh yes and and compelling drama too like it was like the whole package and also because it was unexpected out of nowhere it, it made it even that much more satisfying and enjoyable and of course uh, uh dynamite cast doesn't hurt and so when mike white says yeah i'll write a season two and we're gonna go to italy and the cast is gonna be just as stacked um how could you not be in for this right and so episode one drop dave are we just right back in the saddle with white lotus we're back baby we're so back you know the 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 one uh connecting you know peace between seasons as we're at a new white lotus location goodbye hawaii hello italy as you said is of course jennifer coolidge and john grease characters who become partners in the season one they are back and as guests at this new other white lotus and everyone else is new and i think that's kind of like the perfect way to frame this as an anthology where you don't need any connective tissue at all but in hindsight as HBO, Mike White, Casey Boys, everyone figured out, White Lotus actually turns out this is perfect anthology format because you can just run back the premise of this show at a new location with a new cast, with a new like plot per se, but the you know the narrative aims are more or less going to be the same in terms of the critique of the the wealthy and all that social commentary, as you said. So. There's really no reason to, I think, not be in because the cast is still stacked and now we get to be in a new beautiful location instead. Like, what's not to like, if you ask me? Yeah, I I was totally taken by this first episode. And, you know, not only do I, I love a lot of the cast here, right? You have Aubrey Plaza, who um, I think was the person I was by far most excited for in all of this. But obviously you get jennifer coolidge back you have f murray abraham in here um you know you have uh the the guy from the sopranos i'm forgetting it's michael like, imperioli like yes. you get like just so many great people uh also just want to say did you recognize the voice of uh michael imperioli's wife when he makes the call and she like curses him out no i did not who was that laura dern they got fucking oh, Laura Dern to just oh do this like God. voice cameo. Just <laughs> un- unreal. Oh like, is there perhaps she could guest be a guest actor in one episode? 
I don't know, but if we doesn't seem like it the way these characters are, but (laughs) yeah, it's in play maybe. It would be great, honestly. I would just love it if she's like the center of a season three eventually. Like put Laura Dern in the show. I think she'd be great. But Mm -hmm. I I think just House how he sets up this season with so many like pretty overt but like really smart like character pairings, right? So you have Aubrey Plaza, Theo James, um, yep. Megan Fally, uh, Fahey, and um, who's the other guy? Uh, Aubrey Plaza's partner. Yeah, what's uh, his name? Will is it Ethan. Will Sharp? Yeah, Will, Will Sharp. Sharp. Yes, um, as Ethan. So you have you have those four, and it's like this very like woke, like uh, over intellectual couple with this like beautiful kind of like dumb Aloof. but like yeah happy couple uh there so they're, they're a foursome and those dynamics were by far my favorite part of the first episode but then you get the the three generations of the the sicilian you know italian family mm-hmm. we with, don't uh, speak italian though <laughs> yeah the de grasso's uh, yeah uh, abraham adam demarco and imperioli um then you have Jennifer Coolidge, but like her dynamic with Haley Lou Richardson as her yeah, um, assistant. Yeah, like Gen Z assistant who's like has to like get out of her sight because uh, Greece doesn't want her around. Just like all set up so beautifully. And then, of course, you have the thing with like the the prostitutes and just kind of how they're just kind of like lurking around trying to sneak in. It's all yeah. just like really smart. And it's like you can kind of see where some of these themes are probably going to go. We're just along for the ride because it's just so smart, and the the way that they like do the commentary, the dialogue is just so funny. It's really impressive. What were your favorite like right plot uh, points in the first episode? Yeah, I think you really nailed it there. And I mean, also you, now we have Sabrina Impacciatori as Valentina, <laughs> who is yeah. the manager of this version of the White Lotus, of course, familiar to the Marie Bartlett character from season one. Same kind of idea, and seeing like the 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 hot inner hotel like hotel operations hijinks already starting in season one with the local uh sex workers trying to sneak in when they're not allowed in like you're already getting that like it's kind of giving you all that stuff and like like we we see if we see theo james's meat right away oh my let's God. see what aubrey plaza Do you think that was really his meat i don't think um so. i'm sure it was a prosthetic but I mean that it was packing for sure, and <laughs> I mean Theo James, Aubrey Plaza, two beautiful people. So we, we, I think most of us are in fact rooting to see that happen, which it seems like that's the way it's going. But and we haven't even seen uh, Tom Hollander yet, who is also on this season, uh, coming soon, I imagine. But I think just like all those threads and like how these characters are going to intersect is which is which is so compelling because you know the commentary is going to be strong because like mike white has that wit as a a writer and a creator and like season one we did start in media res with another dead body so you have that like underlying like something is going to go wrong you don't know what's going to go wrong kind of thing don't know if you necessarily need that for this show to like set you up but i don't know if it detracts either um i was trying to figure out who was the one who like set up the date with the sex worker, the local local woman. And I was like, they make it kind of obvious that it could be Michael Imperioli. I was wondering if it might be F. Murray Abraham because he's also like this overtly like womanizing, creepy old man. Mm-hmm. So 
not that that's like really needs to be a mystery, but I was just like trying to see like are they gonna throw a curveball? Is it gonna be Theo James? You know, like who is it? Um, but it ends up being Imperioli. Um, we'll see what kind of character he is because you have him. They definitely characterize him a certain way via that Laura Dern phone call, but his kind of personality thus far hasn't exactly been that either. So there's obviously a lot going on there. Um, how do you like being with uh, Tanya and Greg? Jennifer Coolidge and John Grease. Like for me, like the Tanya character, which I think broadly was like pretty well liked from season one. I never really liked the presence all that much just because like the way that character is portrayed by Coolidge is like that, like kind of like aloof, like, I don't know what's going on. I'm like ignorant of how I affect the world kind of character. Just mm-hmm. like so annoying to me. Whereas like, I'd rather watch like, you know, like shitty entitled, like, like rich people instead because that's like more fun to be around even as you also detest that kind of attitude too i don't know that's just my taste but like do you like being with them like obviously their relationship seems to be more on the rocks now yeah. in season two than it was obviously as a budding uh out of a new romance in season one yeah you know i like being with coolidge more than greece greece is just like a total scumbag and like <laughs> it seems like he's up to no good here like taking the calls and like like pushing her out but i do enjoy like some of the, the macaroons the bits yeah the the macaroon thing but even like when she's like yeah we have to have sex right now and he's like well i gotta go i have swamp crotch i will wash this out and she's like oh, he's always thinking of me like it's just like such funny like little moments i mean overall they are not nearly like my top like two or three most interesting parts of the show but it's like a, a nice like through line and i think coolidge uh, particularly is supposed to like embody this like ultra wealthy like like think that they're like do-gooder and like woke type person who's actually just like totally oblivious and actually doing more harm than good which is like we got it in the first season i don't know if we needed that through line to the second season but i have so much faith in mike white that i assume we're gonna get something more from this eventually yeah i gotta say at the beginning i thought i was gonna hate portia and seeing how much i liked Haley lou richardson by the end and how much i'm rooting for her in uh the the young son there um albie um, yep. adam demarco to get together i'm uh, uh i'm excited to see where that goes and i didn't expect uh to to feel that way so definitely yeah definitely intriguing well and also for me it gives me another reason to like dislike tanya because now she's like treating her assistant terribly and her right. assistant is also played by someone super likable and also great in Haley lou richardson so yeah i mean they they got just as much talent this time around and it's just, now it's just it's a new mix, you know. We just we've stirred the pot, and we're gonna get a new taste of the White Lotus. So I, I'm definitely looking forward to seeing everything happen. Um, also, the, you know, like speaking to like the commentary, right? Like the, I, I think perhaps a little new this time around was kind of the attitude that the show has about sex work early on, where it's like I forget her name, but the um the one who's more experienced experience she is kind of speaking about it in a very i think modern but also like more like feminist point of view where you know why not do this if it's something i want to do with my life i'll take advantage of my looks while i'm young and and get get all that money and do the things i want to do in life like like seeing that that like presented i think so matter of factly like that i think is is pretty refreshing because it it's both a tasteful, but also I think relatively modern and realistic viewpoint of sex work, and it was it was I think 
nice to see that uh, kind of setting up a, a character that otherwise could have been a bit more uh, familiar or, or wrote. Yeah, I, I thought that was pretty cool, actually. And I'm interested to see how they play out, especially because um, so Lucia is the sex worker, but Lucia's friend Mia um, is kind of like there, but like doesn't you know want to be doing sex work, kind of is looking for something more. So it feels like there's something larger going to be coming down the pipeline with her i wanted to ask you you know you mentioned the how we see theo james's hog or yeah. supposedly his hog in the first episode what do you think he was trying to do in that scene like do you think he was like coming on to Aubrey plaza do you think that was like a kind of like putting the like sexual abuse type stuff at right right in her face like what how did you make sense of it yeah i think that's probably the best the best read on it because they're, they're kind of setting up this dude you know, early on, like he he makes reference to um, lawsuits that have no merit, and of course, Old Plaza's character is a attorney who works in that sort of you know harassment uh, like litigation. So like it's a amazingly blunt contrast right away. So yeah, I'd have to imagine that like that guy is just kind of a entitled prick, and that's something he would do, which would be more or less exposing himself to someone. Um, you know, it's not the most graphic thing you could do in that sort of thing, but I mean, it's also it's still inappropriate. So, yeah, um, I would not be surprised to see that through line continued because mm-hmm. right now it's like just a one off. But I think, you know, we'll obviously see more with those two. And who knows, maybe they genuinely come on to each other and it becomes even more messy and thorny and. Uh, unethical you know i think that's what's so compelling about this show is that you can like feel multiple ways about uh characters that you're spending time with totally uh, you know i'm actually interested to see if if because i guess when you how happy megan fahey is right at the very beginning right and how she's like oh you're gonna love this place if theo james cheats on her i can't imagine she would feel this happy so i'm interested to see like either what if she's aware of it maybe she's the one who like chooses to like maybe not be in the relationship or something like that i don't know like they, there's gotta be something with her but uh i'm interested to see where that goes for sure and also it's a, it's nice to see aubrey plaza just like getting a bigger role in something you know we, we've seen her kind of have these like bit roles after uh parks and rec and um i think a larger role obviously in uh, the happiest season stevens well happy season she's really just like a a cameo type of role but you know, something like a uh, superhero show i'm totally blanking on at the moment uh dan stevens but a oh, legion uh, legion yes thanks yeah so it's but it's nice to see her like i think being like put front and center because i think that she definitely has more chops than she's given the credit for yeah, i agree and like she's been carrying like independent films pretty consistently the past few years and like we, we talked about emily the criminal earlier this year yeah. for example but like this is obviously very high profile it's the nine yes. o'clock sunday night hbo show hbo drama that just had a million emmy nominations like this is very high profile for her um and you know deserving of her talent you know to, to get this kind of role she's she's great and also proven to be much more multifaceted than people might have thought watching her playing a part in parks and Rec. so people know that at this point but now ideally more people will know that guys will get to see her front and center on this show can't wait um any last thoughts to you ready to wrap up for this week let's wrap it up so what we got for next week dave yeah so we got a loaded movie 
week coming up. The movies are coming fast and furious. We'll be talking about Banshees of Inishirin, which is out in theaters, as well as James Gray's Armageddon Time, which is coming out on Friday. And then there's a few streaming movies as well. The Harry Styles, the other Harry Styles movie, My Policeman, hits Amazon. And the long-awaited Jennifer Lawrence vehicle, Causeway, hits Apple. On the music front, you know, three low-profile acts. Phoenix, Joji, Drake, and 21 Savage. You know, we'll see if we can make time for them. Uh, And also, our 2023 Grammy nomination predictions are coming because the Grammy nominations are right around the corner in uh, early November. Man, a lot of stuff to talk about next week. Hit that subscribe at youtube.com slash nostalgiapod. Go to the link tree in our Twitter, which is at nostalgiapod, and follow the podcast anyway you'd like to there, and go to our Nostalgia Best of 2022 playlist on Spotify and give us a follow there as well. We'll catch you next week. Peace out! Yeah.